And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Jim Harbaugh is in the news yet again. Some welcome relief is coming to everybody's favorite rule, the targeting rule. And we've got a lot of emails to answer on today's episode of The Audible. Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. Bruce, I don't know why I don't just take vacations in February. Nothing's really going on in college football. Oh, there's a lot of coaching turnover. Yeah, but it's position coaches for the most part. It's well, there's coordinator things. I mean, if you had radar ta- stuff, if you had taken off the whole month of February, you would have missed Steve Sarkeesian putting to bed his lengthy career as Alabama offensive coordinator to go to the NFL. That's correct. Well, there was some news in the past week that we haven't addressed uh, involving, I think, a guy who we both feel is one of our absolute all-time favorite college football coaches. That's Bill Snyder. He is unfortunately dealing with a health issue, throat cancer. And the guy is 77 years old and says that he's getting the treatment and and it's not going to keep him from coaching the team in spring practice. That is so Bill Snyder. It is. Uh, I think somebody had had tweeted after, you know, the announcement had come out from K-State. It was like, well, he'll beat it just like he does Texas, you know, where it's like, hey, 77, no big deal. The best line I saw on Twitter was he will he will beat cancer and then he'll write cancer a nice letter afterward. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's what he does. Um, we want to just wish him. Uh, obviously, we want to wish him a, a speedy recovery and, uh, you know, obviously glad to see that it's not going to uh, that it's clearly something that he can beat. And uh, I think we're happy to see that everybody keeps thinking he's going to retire every year, but he just seems to keep going. In fact, it seems like he's more entrenched now than he was when he first came back in. Uh, cause remember, he did retire for for three years, came back in, I believe, 2009. And at the time he said, oh, I'm just going to do it for a few years to help the program get back in the right direction. Well, here we are eight years later, no sign of slowing down. And yeah, in fact, uh, this should be one of the better teams he's had there since he's come back. You know, they're they're very excited. I know about their offense, and you know they've had some good success in recruiting. It's not a stretch to think that they would be a top twenty-five, even a top fifteen team this year. And, and look, last year they won nine games, and I'm not sure anybody could name one offensive player if you don't follow the Big Twelve on their team. Byron Pringle. Yeah, and he wasn't. You know, and he, he wasn't even one of the yeah. Guy, yeah. That's what he does. He he wins nine games when you least expect it. Beat a Texas A&M team in the bowl game that um, when we were talking the other day about combine invites, I believe A&M's got eight or nine. Kansas State maybe has one. Kansas State wins the football game. Nobody's particularly surprised. Best wishes to Coach Schneider. A um, couple little things in the news. Everything Jim Harbaugh does becomes news. So Jim Harbaugh is hiring onto his staff a guy, Michael Johnson. He's actually a... He was a high school coach right here in my backyard at the King's Academy in Sunnyvale, California, which is next door to my town. And uh, 
hey, it just so happens that his son, Michael Johnson Jr., is a coveted quarterback recruit in the class of 2019. This is, I believe, the second or third time he's pulled this move. And whether you like it or don't like it, the fact is there is a rule in the pipeline that would yet again outlaw something that Jim Harbaugh does. All right, Stu, so you and I have talked about this offline some, and I know I tweeted about it a little bit after signing day. So in the week I spent with LSU before signing day, I actually sat in on their compliance meeting with the staff. It was about a half hour long, and this rule uh, that the AFCA is looking at, uh, looked at and, and, and has voiced its support behind, It's the legislation is IAWP, and that's Individuals Associated with a Prospect. And so what the interpretation comes from, and it wasn't just Michigan who has done this. You know, they did it a couple of years ago, got a big pipeline going into New Jersey, but also it's happened at a lot of other schools and it's been going on for years. It was more common in basketball. But anyway, uh, one of the examples, which was interesting, is there is a player, a top pass rusher out of Georgia named Big Cat Bryant. And LSU was in the mix for him, and they got they heard that Auburn was going to hire his high school coach, uh, Shelton Felton, as his name, and they you know they felt like that only strengthened their chances because they heard that 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 high school coach and he's produced a lot of other players was going to end up at Auburn, and then when the kid committed to Auburn, uh, you know around signing day, that kind of surprised them, and then it came out a day later somebody had reported that the coach in fact was going to go there too. And if the rule passes, which, again, as we said, the AFCA has voiced its support behind, uh, it's retroactive to to the middle of January 2017. And it has a two year window. So you can't hire anybody two years before or two years after related, you know, connected to the prospect. So if that's the case, how can Harbaugh do this? If he does end up getting the Michael Johnson's son, it is going to fall within that two year window. I don't know. I mean, I had asked a compliance person at another school. I said, what, what, how is this going to play out? And the, what I was told was maybe that school is convinced that it won't pass or they're basically telling them, hey, if it telling the coach, hey, if this doesn't work out, we can't hire you. We can't keep you. But obviously the player is still going to be there. So it's a you know, it's an interesting dynamic right now in college college football. Let's say the rule is in effect or not. Like, let's just forget this rule is even on the table. Do you just have an ethical problem with him doing this? With Harbaugh doing it or any coach doing any it? Any coach doing it. Um, it's a long-standing thing in basketball, and it uh, yeah, one of the it's first never examples. been looked on favorably in basketball because obviously you could – I remember um, – The first example I remember of it – Michael Beasley? This, what? No, way before that. Uh, when Larry Brown got hired at Kansas, oh, he yeah. hired Danny Manning's dad, Ed, and Danny Manning was the top high school recruit coming out. Now, Danny Manning's dad and Larry Brown were teammates in the ABA, so it wasn't like it was just a random you know, guy. We see plenty of examples of people hiring relatives or whatever you know, to, to positions in their program. That happens a lot. And the unethical part, which I think – you know, it, it's just a reality of it is, you know, it's almost like paying for the player where somebody can hire somebody to a, you know, $100,000 a year job. And that 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 uh, that person is taken care of. But by the same token, I've talked to talk to 
people who aren't affected by it necessarily. And they go, you know, everybody has to try to get a foot in the door some way or another. And a lot of these coaches are, are, are very competent. And what do you do if you're at a really good school that produces a lot of players? That mean you could never be hired. The only way you can get in is by a school that doesn't recruit players from your school. So I get the other side of it too. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because we, the NCAA continues now. Obviously, this I don't think this is necessarily targeted directly at Jim Harbaugh because, like you said, a lot of people have done this. But it is the you know if it goes through, it's the latest in a string of um, legislation they've passed that curtails something that Harbaugh has been doing. And for the most part, I, I find the stuff he's doing to be pretty harmless. Like having a practice at IMG Academy, harmless. Hiring the father of a kid who may or may not end up being the quarterback in Michigan two years from now, fairly harmless. It just uh, so you, you're, you're okay things. with it. I am, yeah. I, I I actually think the reason it's more troubling to people in basketball is because obviously one player in basketball can, you know, have a huge dramatic effect. Danny Manning would be a perfect example of that. I mean, if you're that convinced that this one kid out of twenty five that's going to sign with you maybe one day. It's worth hiring a guy onto the staff. I guess I don't have a problem with it. Um, I'm sure other people disagree. Well, yeah, and also what you get sometimes is a pipeline into that area. I mean, I go back to, you know, the old that old Miss staff I was around. They had two high school coaches on the offensive staff, Hugh Freeze and Frank Wilson. You know, they both had pipelines into one into Memphis, one in New Orleans. And Chad Morris, who had a a he had Jevin Sneed. That's how, how he was up in Oxford for the visit. Uh, he was transferring out of Texas. And I remember Ogeron saying, you know, if I hire this guy, I mean, I think he's a smart guy, but it'll help us with a pipeline into Texas. And I think we've seen plenty of examples of coaches, especially when you go into an area like that where you, you need somebody who is really well respected in that area. So I think it cuts in a lot of different ways and everything. And, um, you know, I think that on that standpoint, I think it does make a lot of sense. Other NCAA rule discussion, um, everybody hates the targeting rule. I mean, every time when you watch college football in the fall and a guy gets ejected for targeting and it's not necessarily clear that it was targeting or in some cases clearly wasn't, um, everybody goes nuts. And from the moment this rule was introduced, I always thought the intent is good. And from everything we've been told, it has had a you know an effect, a deterrent on those kind of dangerous hits. But it's such a huge price to pay for a guy to be uh, kicked out of a game if it's in the second half, suspended for the first half of the next game. And oftentimes it's just kind of a you know a cl- very close judgment call. Well, uh, according to USA Today, our friend George Schroeder talked to Rogers Redding, the NCAA rules uh, chairman. That's probably not his exact title. They are looking to modify it so that you, there's still a 15-yard penalty regardless. But if a replay is not able to uh, not able to over kind of the middle ground, right? If it's not able to overturn it, but it's also not able to definitively confirm it, then the guy would stay in the game. And that seems kind of common sense to me. Why didn't they just do that in the first place? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Sometimes it, it's one of those examples where, where you need to break some eggs before you get it right. Uh, any downside you see to this potentially? Well, the downside would be if guys, I mean, we'll just have to see how it's enforced, but if guys started to feel like, okay, now that that's not uh, necessarily going to be 
you know, it's not necessarily going to be as harsh, then I can get away with more. And but but I think that would be a big risk, right? Because if you do intentionally lead with your head, you know, basically do what ta- the the definition of the targeting rule is, then you probably still will get kicked out. Yeah. By the way, talking about this reminded me. I was like, I feel like there's like a handful of guys, and maybe it's only one, who are going to be like you wondered, are they suspended for the first half of the opener for something that happened in a bowl game? Mm-hmm. Um. I almost feel like I need to like research that to see whatever happened with that or where where those rules are. Ultimately, you know, I don't think anybody really – we're what? It was 2013, so we're going to – we've been through three seasons of it, and I still think most people, including sometimes the refs themselves, don't necessarily know what targeting is. And, and I think it got doubly infuriating this past year when they – remember the first game, first weekend of the year, the Texas-Notre Dame game? Mm-hmm, the shot in the end zone. Yeah, like – where it is blatant, and they either don't call it, or uh, in you know, in the case of that new rule that went into effect last year, where replay can can call it themselves, and they still don't do it. You know who's the big winner in all this with with the with the added uh, legislation and rules like this in games? The one person who wins the most. I don't know who. Mike Pereira. Yeah, that's the true. More- the more nuance and complexity to this, the more valuable he becomes. So, so for Mike Pereira, like he is so far and above the best at what he does. You know, the other networks have tried to copy this, and obviously the viewers see that in real time during the games. What they don't realize is behind the scenes, we get these. Uh, you and I and everybody else that does college football gets these really elaborate email videos every week where he. Is like a it's like a clinic. Here, are, you know, ten calls from games past week, and explains them, clarifies them. Um, few people know their craft better than he knows his. Yeah, I, I I think he more than anybody is like you said is so much better than whatever he does more so than anybody else in our industry. You know, I think you can like okay, this guy's a really good analyst. This guy's a really good analyst or whatever, but. There's nobody close. Like when Pereira goes in to negotiate his contract with with Fox, he's just bringing tapes of the people the other networks have and go, okay, this is what they have. <laughs> yeah, no, I think Fox, and of course he does NFL, you know, NFL and college. Uh, it's it's interesting to what we got to get. Have, have we ever had him on? We haven't, have we? Yeah, I think I got to smooth over some stuff because that package you're talking about. At one point, he he got wind that I didn't watch it or something, and it was a little bit of an awkward moment. He was like, oh gee, thanks, and I was like, oh, I didn't mean anything by it. I was busy this week. Yeah, so it, it's fascinating. He sits in this cube and the terrarium, the terrarium where he's like, I mean, he he rarely ever get like comes out for air. Like once or twice a day, he comes over to where we're watching the games and and eats some of the food. But otherwise, he's kind of just sitting in there with his team of people who are watching all the games. And because you know this happens very quickly, you gotta you gotta watch it. You gotta make that reaction in real time. Wow, I didn't know this podcast would turn into an ode to Mike Pereira. Well, it, it was always it always had that potential. I mean, look, I think I said this after you were at the Oklahoma Ohio State game, and he was on our fill, and for like four minutes or six minutes, he was the best life raft we could ever have on how this was going to play out, what everything about it, and you know, he's very succinct, and he's just a very he's just very very good at what he does. Anything else you want to touch on before we get to our listeners' emails? No, I think that's it. I think we've loved up Pereira enough, and I think it's time to move on. 
What about the draft thing you want to talk about? Oh yeah. So we had we had Gene Chizik on the other day. The response to that was yeah, pretty if, overwhelming, by the way. If you guys haven't downloaded that one yet, uh, it's been pretty cool to see. I, I can't remember the last time we did a podcast that got this many, you know, people just writing us or tweeting us to tell us how much they enjoyed it. And uh, it was. It was a fun conversation. So find that if you haven't listened to it already. Yeah. So, but one of the things that came out of it, it got me thinking more was the quarterback situation. It's always, it's always intriguing to see how the draft is going to handle, you know, the latest college QBs. And I think I saw uh, one of the top rankings that Daniel Jeremiah has and his, his, you know, five guys in there. So it was the three guys that you kind of would expect at this point or heard plenty about, which is Deshaun Watson, Deshaun Kaiser, Mitch Trubisky. And then the other two guys were old teammates together at Texas Tech, uh, Pat Mahomes and then Davis Webb, who ended up at Cal. So without getting too much into the latter two, this is the thing I would ask you. In your book, uh, the Bulls, Poles, and Tattered Souls book from you know a dozen years or so ago, I remember you had something in there, a chapter about not, maybe not understanding how the NFL looks at the draft, but basically to distill it down is, hey, this guy was a great player in college. There's probably a good chance he's going to be he, he won't be a bust in the NFL, right? You know, the and, funny thing about that is, do you know who the uh, who that was centered around at least the beginning of that chapter? Vince Young. No, our friend Matt Leinart. Oh. <laughs> what so you, was that? What was that? Oh. Well, I mean, look, I I love Matt. He's an awesome guy, and he was a great college player. But I don't think. You know, that was a, the you know, turned out to be a great draft pick. Yeah, no, it didn't. That, that, it was, you know, that showed you how long ago the book was that I, he was either a rookie or hadn't played much yet. In hindsight, I wish I'd used Aaron Rodgers as the example. Well, my, my where I'm getting to this is like the more I think about it, if I was an NFL team and I could be totally wrong about this three years from now, but I would have a hard time if I needed a quarterback passing on Deshaun Watson. I agree. I, mean, I, I do think that the NFL evaluators overthink this sometimes. I don't know, like, what, what's going to come back to, like, he's going to check all the boxes, the one box, and it is a big one, which I could imagine people will say is, we don't feel confident enough in him uh, as a downfield passer. I don't, I don't know where, I, yeah, I don't know where that would come from. I mean, think I, about some of the I, throws to Mike Williams in the national title game. I don't know if they look at it and go, you know what, those throws would get picked off in the L. I, I don't know what you look at. Well, it the wise. red flag is the interceptions. And and I was as critical of it as anybody. No question, he threw a lot of interceptions. But I thought I came to a better understanding of it later, you know, when we got to the playoff, and maybe the NFL people will too, the more they look into it, that that was as much a product of their kind of offensive philosophy as anything. Yeah, I don't know if they're going to say, oh, well, he's too careless with the ball. And like I said, in the NFL, that'll be more interceptions or not. But from a character standpoint and a work ethic standpoint, he's going to check the box in a big way. From ability to handle pressure, he's going to check the box in a big way. Size-wise, he's not hes not you know a huge guy, but he's not tiny. Um, athleticism-wise, he's a plus. Um, and I, I just go back to – and he's played a lot of football at a high level. It's not like this is a one-year wonder. He's played basically two and a half full seasons and shined on the biggest stage. Like when I look at guys who did that when they were at their best in the biggest games, like Vince Young would definitely be in that in that realm. I mean, he was awesome in big games, 
the the issue with Vince Young, and I think there was probably more than one, but to me the biggest issue with with Vince was just the maturity of handling things. Well, Deshaun Watson's not. I don't think that's going to be an issue at all. He's the opposite. Um, you know, I I think I don't know. Again, I I could be totally wrong, and I'm sure I'll run into some NFL people I know in the next couple of weeks who will say, well, this is why we're uncomfortable with him as a as a top five pick. But I just remember, you know, I listened to another podcast. It was an NFL podcast earlier this week, and the talk was about how bad the quarterback classes are underwhelming. And, you know, I feel like I hear that all the time. And I don't think, like, this group is going to be that bad of a class because I think there's three interesting options. This isn't Christian Ponder going in the top ten. You know, I, I don't think it's the same level. Well, there goes any chance of Sam Ponder ever listening to our podcast again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I, I don't know. I would assume she doesn't now. Um, yeah. Well, no, but you know what I mean. There's been other. There's been other really shaky guys who've gone in the first twelve picks. Well, that class are, that you're talking about was the was the shining example of that Jake Locker. Um, you, you know I me. Mean? I don't like the ones where the guy clearly underperformed in college, but because he's six five and has a big arm, there everybody's still all over him. Logan Thomas comes to mind. Um, or if it's somebody like Deshaun Watson who. Maybe. Well, Logan Thomas also didn't go in the first two rounds. He went like fourth or fifth round, though. He got his shot. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, that's true. But Deshaun Watson didn't underperform. He led his team to two national championship games and won one. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what more they could ask for. And I think, I mean, I would think once it gets to draft day, he don't, like, if you were a betting man, would you still think he'll be the highest one taken? Or you think somebody will fall in love with Mitch Trubisky and he'll be the highest one or just, you know, I th- it depends. It's beauty in the eye of the holder. Like I think people look and go, okay, Kaiser's bigger and has a better arm. Um, Kaiser hasn't played that much football. He's played more than Trubisky, but certainly less than, than, uh, than Deshaun has. And he hasn't had anywhere near as much success. I mean, that's, that's what I come back to, you know, it's, Again, this is going to be an interesting ride for the next whatever it is, two, three months on Deshaun Watson. So here's how all over the map this stuff is. After the first national title game run, I distinctly remember some of these NFL draft experts saying that Deshaun Watson was the clear number one pick the next year and, in fact, was the— you know, best quarterback prospect coming out of college since Andrew Luck. I definitely remember seeing that. But were these NFL people or were they just, you know, they were people you don't know who they really are except they do the, they do draft stuff on Twitter? I don't want to try to attribute it to a specific person. But, you know, okay, so at the same time that's going on, <laughs> Todd McShay puts out his first ones before the season and Mitch Leidner's in there. I think Kyrie McShay both had Mitch Leidner in there. Obviously, he's nowhere to be found now. And... Well, now and, we're not going to be able to have either one of those guys in the yeah. podcast, too. And, Good and, going. And now McShay is back to having Deshaun Watson as his number one guy. and But then other people, like, what happened between last year and this year that he would go from being the best quarterback prospect since Andrew Luck to, well, this is such a bad quarterback class, and he's part of the reason why. He won a national title. I think you'd have to go back and see who the people were who said that in the beginning and who the people are who are saying it now. I just think it's so all over the map. It's so subjective. Now, the best thing you can do is just find, you know, pick a couple guys. We love Daniel Jeremiah, who you whose you know opinions you really trust and value. They're never going to be a hundred percent right, just like the recruiting analysts that you like to uh, 
dismissed so much. I don't but, dismiss them. You, now all of a sudden, it's, you're turn, turning this into like you're a farce. No, no, you know no. You know what no. I dismiss? You know what I dismiss? I dismiss Arby's. I do not miss the Well, you're probably wise to um, distrust Arby's because they, they, they of all companies apparently had a hack of their consumer information. Huh. Fortunately, I haven't gone there anytime recently. Yeah, but that adds to the clutter, right? All these anonymous quotes from NFL people. And as you know, um, one personnel guy at one team might look at a guy completely differently than exactly a personnel right. guy at another team. Exactly right. I don't want to, And maybe that's why it's fun for us. Yeah, I, I would take him. I'm not quite as confident in him as I was Mariota, which I could never understand in a million years where that criticism was coming from. And obviously it didn't matter because he ended up going number two in the draft. I don't know that I would take him, Watson, number two in the draft, but I wouldn't, if I really need a quarterback, I would take him and feel very confident about it. Yeah, so I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you too. I mean, again, I feel like I may hear something in Indy that, you know, like I know a bunch of the quarterback coaches in the NFL, somebody's going to say something about, how they feel about how he handles something. But we'll see. All right, let's get some emails. It's the mailbag from a computer. So not literally a bag, but just mail. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. This first one from Scott Carey uh, apparently caused you to do a little late night research. It did. Uh, You want me to read this? I'll read it since you apparently have the answer. Okay. Bruce and Stuart been enjoying the show this offseason. Thanks for sending out episodes each week. Our pleasure. UConn's women's basketball team just won an incredible 100th straight game. Has there ever been a streak or championship run like UConn women's basketball has had in college football? The answer to that question is no, there has never been anything like this. Um, the, the truth is, and I, I don't want to slight you know, what UConn women have done, but the sports are different in terms of, uh, you know, you have if you have a great team or a great couple of year run, you're going to rack up triple. You could you have the potential to rack up triple digits. I mean, look what Oklahoma, how long they needed to 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 run to have that that great run they had, whatever it was a half a century ago. So yeah, the record at the highest level, Bud Wilkinson's Oklahoma teams in the fifty mid fifties, forty seven straight wins. Right, but the, also I think that the parity level in college football is way different than it is in women's college basketball, and I feel like it's been that way for a while. It's I don't want to say it's much easier, but you have a better chance to be able to accumulate some dominant players, uh, and it kind of feeds on itself. So it's I think it's 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 harder to get to this point in in college football. There's just too many factors that go into it. So you know, I I thought when you said you've been like. Burning the midnight oil. Well, here's some of the burning the midnight oil. Okay. So do you know how many times they beat teams in that 100 games? Uh, the games were within single digits. I believe I saw that stat. Only two, right? Yeah. So 98 of the 100 games, were they won by double digits. And you know what? It's What's even maybe more impressive is they're like 148 and 1 over their last 149 games. It wasn't like, you know they had a bunch of losses, you know, before that. So it's just, it's, it's truly awesome. What Gino REM and that program have done there. So I think there is an example comparable to it. It's just not in division one, right? Are you going to say North Dakota state? I'm going to say Mount union just this past year had its NCAA record, 112 game winning streak ended. This went from, uh, this went from 2005 to 2016. 
Now, I am not a Division three football expert, but I'm going to guess that it's much like women's basketball, where they are head and shoulders above most of the teams they play, and yet, I don't think anybody can deny, a 112-game winning streak over, and, and let's not forget, that's over such a long period of time that the roster turned over multiple times during that span. That's pretty damn impressive. Yeah, speaking of them... Uh, one of the more, uh, I don't know, flew under the radar a little bit, but one of the more interesting hires of the offseason was when Mike Sanford, who's the first-year head coach, he goes to Western Kentucky. He actually hired their offensive coordinator. You don't see, you know, you see guys who went to went to Mount Union. Matt Campbell was one. I think Jason Candle, who's the head coach at Toledo, is another one. Um, you know, there's a handful of these guys, but usually you don't see them make the jump from there to to FBS right away. At least I don't feel like you no, see that. No, I mean, there's there FCS to FBS is one thing, but D, D3 to, FCA, to FBS. Yeah. So, and he's going to be, I think he's their new line coach. I don't think he's like a run game coordinator, but he's a younger coach, Jeff Dart. And uh, so we'll see where his career heads. But How's he's this for a stat? Former player. The Mount Union was, and this is as of when they had the streak end, 222-1. and one. In their last 223 games dating back to 1994, they won 110 straight games from 94 to 2005. And after an October 22, 2005 loss to Ohio Northern, they then rattled off another 112 straight wins. Like, how do you do that? How can you not have one year where things don't come together and you lose, say, two games? Yeah, it, it is amazing. It really is. A uh, little trivia question for Mount Union. Which college football TV star has a family connection to Mount Union? I have no idea. Uh, Allie LaForce. Really? Her, What's the connection yeah, there? Her brother Jack was a linebacker there recently. He's younger. He's probably just finished up playing a few years ago. And Allie, of course, was a star Division one athlete herself. Yeah, she was a MAC basketball. I think she was at Ohio. Or she was the point of- guard, starting point guard, I believe, for... I think the, it was a shooting guard. The Ohio remember. University. Yeah. I don't shooting know. Shooting guard? Yeah. I, I remember I worked with her on some shows, and I remember her talking about getting lit up by Don Staley in a game or something like that. So, uh, okay. Enough Mount Union talk. Your, your, your analogy is a very good one. That's probably as good as anybody could come up with. So, moving on. Uh, this one is from Kevin Sabir. I believe that's his pronunciation. Love your podcast. It's not a surprise that there are the top three states for producing D1 football talent, Texas, Florida, California. Does high school football there have any stereotypes or models that schools look for? I remember Charlie Strong talking about Florida kids have raw speed and that, quote, dog in them. And Texas kids have have been in football factories since like third grade, making them more D1 ready. What in your experience are the stereotypes and perceptions of athletes and programs from the top three recruiting states? Well, so I think that the the stereotype that probably of that that's most prevalent, right, is that Florida produces the speed, especially South Florida. Yeah, um, and not I think that the you, kids in Texas and California are slow, but that's what Florida is most associated with. Yeah, and I think the thing you hear the most is that the coaching in Texas is the most advanced, so you get players who may be more developed. Um, and there's some of these, and he's right, the stereotypes. I do remember, um, this was back to the meat market days, one of the guys on the Ole Miss staff was talking about a kid in Florida, and he was a 185-pound linebacker. And 
they were talking, I was like, don't worry about his size. You know, when he gets in a meal program, he's going to grow. He said he eats two meals a day and one of them is Skittles. So, you know, it's, Ouch. yeah. One of the guys I know who's now in the NFL was a former player at Miami. And he talked about, and this is, this was clearly a slight at, uh, at Florida, uh, Olima, but he said, I would not take linemen from Florida. I would take them from Texas. They're coach better, this and that. And, you know, he pointed to plenty of examples of, of Florida kids who hadn't worked out, who are highly regarded offensive linemen. Now, having said that, Larry Matunzel was a Florida kid, and he turned out to be a top five pick in the draft. Yeah, I think it would be impossible to cast a net entirely across all, you know, across the entire state's worth of football talent. You know, California, and speaking of that, California is so big and encompasses so many different, uh, t- you know, areas and cultures. Like, I don't know that something that applies to a kid in Orange County is going to apply to a kid from uh, Bakersfield. I'm going to throw a, a, a good one at you, though. Okay. So this is, and I think this comes from either Brandon Simmons or or Brian Stumpf, but it was like, try to name the last really good dual threat quarterback the state of California has produced. Hmm. I was just going to say that if there is a stereotype for California, it's the prototypical blonde uh, tall, you know, pocket passer, pocket passer. Yeah. Dual threat quarterback from California. Um, I got to leave that to you. You're much more encyclopedic about the recruiting annals. Yeah. I mean, the names are, it's going to dry up pretty quick. I mean, you could look and say, okay, you know, Matt Scott, he's from Southern California, went to Arizona, was, was very talented. I mean, if it's that, Blake Barnett was pretty highly recruited. Now we'll see how he does at Arizona State. But there haven't been a lot who've who've gone on to college football in the last decade. Like Nebraska took one who was like the West Coast Tim Tebow, Johnny Stanton, but he didn't end up doing anything there. You know, so it's it's not been there aren't doesn't mean there aren't guys who are athletic quarterbacks who came from here, but just in terms of that, it's just you just don't see a lot of them. Or haven't seen a lot of them in a while. What about the starting quarterback for your Utah Utes? Yeah, I mean, again, I would. You're not well. I guess you're. What's your? What's your? And we're talking about Troy Williams. What's your yeah. categorization of? You know, because he was the number one dual threat quarterback, and when he went to Washington, yeah, it hasn't. You know, he's okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to. You're talking bona fide star college. Uh, yeah, that's why I was like, yeah, Matt Scott. You know, Matt Scott was was drafted, I think, and you know, but there's just not a lot of. I think you'd have to go back a while to find one. Yeah, I'm trying because uh, I'm finding this hard to believe that a state this big couldn't produce an occasional star dual threat quarterback. But uh, so far, <laughs> you're you're um, you're turning out to be right here. Um, plus, if it's the recruiting experts telling you that, then I would believe it. But this is a great great segue because our next question involves. He's not from California, but involves a very highly rated dual threat quarterback. All right. This is right up your alley. From Patrick, Bruce, and Stu, love the podcast as always. Believe it or not, you usually fuel the college football talk around the cooler at the U.S. Embassy here in Rome. I continue to be astounded by our global reach. Yes, I do too. That's crazy. You got to show some of our bosses these emails. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I wanted to ask for your take. On the Texas A&M quarterback position moving forward, they signed Kellen Mond and Connor Blumrick, both of whom I believe Bruce saw to lead 11 and are high on Nick Starkle. Kellen Mond was the number one dual threat quarterback in this past class, I believe. 
He, Kellen Mond is an interesting one. He was a kid who was very highly regarded, was committed to Baylor for a long time. He's actually a Texas kid, but went to IMG Academy in Florida. Uh, he should fit in what Noel Mazzoni wants to do, and I think he has a chance. Uh, I had I actually hadn't seen or I don't remember seeing Connor. I think Connor's a taller, lankier kid. I want to say he's more of a developmental guy. Um, I hadn't gotten that from them. That was my recollection of talking to some recruiting guys about him. I know they're very high on Nick Starkle. I went down there in August and they were really excited about him. And as far as I know, nothing's changed. They, you know, they like his arm. He's a smart kid. Nick Starkle is also a late bloomer. This was kind of an interesting thing. So I'm there, their Thanksgiving game against LSU. Ogeron's two kids. He has twins. They're, they're, uh, one's a quarterback, one's a receiver at McNeese State now. They're a freshman. They see Nick Starkle. They grew up with him. And I guess when Nick Starkle was a little kid, he was not – he was maybe the least athletic kid in the group. But, every, you know, he's a great kid and everything, and he really blossomed into a big-time guy. And so, you know, I I could see Kellen Mond pushing, pushing him. Obviously, they have, you know, really good weapons to work with either way. So we'll see what they do. Um even though Patrick doesn't say it in this question, uh, don't rule out Jake Hubenak. He has started before. He knows the system, and he's got some ability. It's not like he's just some walk-on who he's not Connor McQueen. So um, I think they would they would turn to him. Sorry, Connor. I just uh, when he said the future of the position, I just thought he meant like, or is anybody actually going to stick around this time? They've had a little bit of an issue. You might be aware of. Um, Highly regarded quarterbacks transferring. No, you're right. I'm looking at the question to see where it says the future of the position, though. No, no, no. I was kidding. That is. Oh, 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 oh. Sorry. My turn. Yes. This question is from Jason Grant from Dallas, Texas. To what lengths do you think Greg Sankey or John Swafford should go to defend one of their schools from the NCAA if the investigation is taking years to conclude and seemingly turning into a witch hunt? specifically Ole Miss football and North Carolina basketball. It seems to me they have a responsibility to defend their schools, but yet they've done nothing. I listen to every episode. Jason, this is a really good question. I'm it's curious to hear It's a really good question, Stu and it speaks to, you know, in, like, in the Ole Miss case, it speaks to a huge, you know, I believe, conflict of interest that we talked about before. Greg Sankey is the chairman of the Committee on Infractions. If, you know, when the Ole Miss case finally goes... I don't actually know the rule. I assume he would have to recuse himself. I don't think he could hear the Ole Miss case. But the point is, he's really in no position to be criticizing any sort of NCA enforcement, NCA investigations, because that would be directly undermining something that he's basically in charge of. I mean, he's not in charge of the investigation part. He's only in charge of the punishment part. But it seems to me the committee, the chairman of the Committee on Fractions probably should not be criticizing the process and that being said isn't it like like uh, jason says his first job is the commissioner of the sec and so it would seem to me that his interest in Ole miss should should um supersede that but um i don't know it's a it's a tricky it's an interesting question i do think you see the commissioners from time to time talk generally about we need to find a way to overhaul this process or to speed it up but no, you don't normally hear them criticize the NCAA's handling of a specific school. And I think that's because, you know, they signed off on this. Like the commissioners are also the leaders of the NCAA. They're the members or the are the NCAA. 
this is the process they crafted. And I don't know. I, I don't think you can try to think of what an analogy for this would be where you're like, you helped come up with it and then you criticize because it's not, you know, benefiting your own member. Yeah, I mean, it's like you said, it's really complicated, and I could see all the all the sides of it, and I can see how hypocritical it is. I mean, I, I live in Southern California, and there's still so much hostility uh, from a lot of USC people, not and fans especially, not just at at the late Paul D, but even at like Missy Conboy, who works at Notre Dame, and so anything that comes up there, it's like they they see hypocrisy in it. And that's it's a very flawed system that the NCA has created, especially when and we and I've talked about this a lot, but it's a moving it's a sliding scale of justice because it's such a moving target because not only is every case different, but every, everybody who rules on it is different. Right. Because it changes so much. They also, you know, while I understand the USC fans frustration, they completely overhauled the penalties between then and now. But, I, you know, that doesn't really excuse no, what it I does. think was the overreaction to the USC one. I would also say these two cases that he brings up are different. We talked in, at length with Dennis Dodd about North Carolina basketball. It is a something that involves two decades. Um, I, you know, while I would love to see it resolved quick, more quickly, I can understand why it's an extremely complicated case. I don't get why Ole Miss football is dragging on for so long. You know, I do. It did. You know, the Laramie Tunzel draft night stuff basically kicked it back open. But even that was, what, 10 months ago now? Mm-hmm. I, I don't understand why what, something that is basically, unless there's some bombshell we don't know about, basically coming down to, you know, some some relatively minor uh, extra benefits here and there has been dragging on for years at this point. Very, very strange. Very, very, very strange and very messy. Finally, one one for you, Bruce, Dave Carr. Hi, Bruce and Stu. You guys are great. Love your podcast anyway. Bruce is correct and Stu is wrong. Cutter is pronounced Cutter. See, I said it right this time. The country that is spelled Q-A-T-A-R is pronounced Cutter. You know, I uh, researched this a little bit, and I don't think it's wrong to say Qatar. I think that both are used. I've actually heard that from people. But Cutter is the more modern one, the, the one that's actually closer to the uh, Arabic version and the one that is now going to probably be accepted going forward. So I will concede this one to you. I don't want a concession. What I prefer is an apology because the tone, <laughs> if we go back and, and – You're I, right. I heard it. It was It was bad. so like you went to junior college. I went to Northwestern. <laughs> you you know, you called me like a rube in that tone. Well, I – that's my fault. I didn't real. I didn't, never heard that cutter. And so when you said it, I just – I started laughing. And uh, obviously I should not have done that. But I really is nothing. It's not sort of like – any sort of uh, indictment. I wasn't trying to make some sort of indictment of your level of education. It seems to me you're a little bit sensitive about that. It comes <laughs> up all the time, and uh, in particular, the Northwestern side of it. So, you know, I think, you know, that was a long time ago. I think you need to get over it, you know. You, you've done well for yourself despite the junior college route. Yeah, okay. Um, honestly, I wouldn't have known that if it wasn't for, you know, somebody I know is – had had said it before and had kind of called me out on it. So Aaron Rodgers went to junior college. Nothing wrong with junior college. Plenty of people went to junior college, yeah. please. So, and you, by your own admission, have said you were not a very dedicated student in college. No, and I think probably look, and this is something I I kind of keep in mind when we talk about college players. I was not, you know, ready to handle college or you know the most focused or mature 
or, or a grounded person at that point. So for me to like, you know, sit there and, you know, that's different than somebody, you know, I didn't, didn't hold a bank in college either, but just, you know, we all get there at a different rate. And I think we all got to remember we were once like whenever I see somebody gets arrested and I, it's like, Oh, it's a minor in possession. I'm like, yeah, I'm not too, you know, or somebody had a public drunkenness. It's different to have a, you know, have one of those than, you know, like I said, you held people up or had some violent crime or something like that. Also, there's a difference between in academics between academic fraud, which, you know, I'm going to look disfavorably on. But, you know, sometimes you'll see a guy get suspended, especially I feel like basketball more football. You see a guy suspended for a game or something because he missed too many classes. I that would be very, very hypocritical of me to ever hold anybody uh, to ever criticize any college athlete or college student for missing classes. How many classes did you skip? Like, were you a 50-50 guy or what? 50-50? No, but here, here's an important thing to note. Okay, at Medill, I don't know if they still do this, but at the time, at Medill, they basically, on the first day of school, they bring all the new students, all the new journalism students, and they basically say to you flat out, your grades don't matter. Getting clips and getting in internships and getting experience matters. So when you get that message, you're like, oh. Well, I guess I don't have to take the classes that seriously. Now, I tended to take the journalism ones pretty seriously. But some of the other ones, let's just say there was one quarter where I was in a kind of really boring poli-sci class. And uh, it became clear after the midterm or after the first test that nothing he said in class was actually on the tests. It was all just from the book, you know, that you, the, the, the readings. The lectures were basically, I guess, for him, for his own sake. So, yeah, I stopped going to the class. This is a little wonky, and so you're dismissed if you don't, want to, you don't want to hear the rest of this for journalism purposes. But what is my, – my view on this is I learned – everything I learned about doing my job now, none of it came from school. Correct. Um, it did come from and, – and one of my professors at, at Miami got this, which was you know, if I had worked part-time at the Miami Herald – and I was way better served to go go cover something if I had the opportunity to go cover. Like, there's a couple of PGA stops that are in South Florida, and was do that than rather go to my. You know, I had like three classes one day, and I was like, "Hey, I'm not going to do that." And one of the teachers understood that. I don't know if the other ones cared. Um, so I got two questions for you. I'm going to ask you the first one this way. For me, I had got very little out of college. To be honest, I felt like I could have done my job at 18 the same way now. Now I wouldn't have, I've gotten better through experience and everything else, but I really don't think anything translated that I got out of it. And that's not a knock on, and I guess maybe it is a knock on, on college, but especially the one I went to, but, um, just the journalism as it is, because I feel like I learned way more when I was a part-timer at the Miami Herald, if I got to go, especially if I got to go cover an event, than I was if, you know, in school with the classes they teach you. Um, do you buy what I'm saying? I mean, did you? No, that was definitely the case. And look, I went to a journalism school that likes to say that it's the number one journalism school in the country. Uh, and I had a lot of great teachers. And, but. What made them great then? Well, one of my teachers was uh, our good friend Andy Bagnato, uh, who at the time was the national college football writer for the Chicago Tribune, is now. Um, so what PR made him a great teacher? What made him a great teacher is that he did exactly what I was hoping to get into. And so 
Uh, that doesn't make him a great teacher. That just makes him a successful, successful. Can I finish here? No, he did. He would tell a lot of stories from like, he wasn't like reading out of a textbook. I don't know if there was a textbook in that class. He would tell us stories from his own experience of, uh, you know, covering the Colorado Michigan game and this and that, that were much more, um, helpful for me and kind of eye opening than reading out of anything that you would say is like kind of a straight classroom thing. Uh, And there were other good teachers as well. But the point is, none of that prepared me for what I do today anywhere near as much as covering Northwestern sports for the Daily Northwestern and competing against the Chicago media, going to the Cincinnati Enquirer as an intern and not knowing anything and having them basically be like, go cover this. Um, Like, they would just throw you right into the fire. They didn't care. Um, I took a lot of angry – like, somebody calls in, you know, angry reader or angry whatever, somebody that was – in a story and is ticked off about it, and I happen to be in the office and I have to get take that call, um, that's where you learn to be a kind of a tough reporter. So I'm with you. I, I think that in our particular field, there's only so much you can teach. It's the best just go lesson, and do it. The best lesson you've ever gotten in the business, whether it was in school or at SI or at ESPN Magazine or... Always stay Marriott. <laughs> no, you get that lectures. Everybody that enters the field gets that lecture at some point, and uh, and then we all end up, you know, every vacation the rest of our lives is paid for with Marriott points. No, you got to come up with something better than that. Um, do you have one? And I'll think of mine. While I, yeah, I do have one. It's a embarrassing story, but I was probably twenty two or twenty three at the Miami Herald, and I had done I I don't know anything about soccer, but I had written a very good feature about a soccer goalie. And felt really good about it. It was something I'd worked on. Um, and then they had me go cover. Uh, it was just before, right before the Marlins moved down there. So Yankee spring training was there. I think the Yankees and the Orioles were both. And Steve White, who's now very successful at NFL Network, was one of the people who worked in our office and was very was always great to me. But I remember going to cover the Yankees, you know, by myself. And they had a game that was going to be on TV on ESPN against the Orioles. And I was working on a story about this guy, John Habian, who was trying to be their 10th pitcher or something that I, you know, I was too focused in that. And, you know, I did not follow the herd, which the Yankees have a huge herd media. And I, you know, I was just, this is before the days of the internet. So I didn't really know, you know, I knew some of the names because I grew up in New York, but I just didn't know who they were or anything. I didn't know what I should have known. And I got a call from our sports editor saying, hey, do you have a story on Steve Howe getting sent down? And I don't know if you remember anything about Steve Howe, but Steve Howe was like a 13-time drug abuser or whatever you want to call it. And he'd been, you know, had some a lot of success early on. He was a relief pitcher. And the Yankees were, were, I think they were reassigning him. And I was not there for any of it. I did not have it. I did not know what had happened. And because the game was on TV, they knew. And I literally walked throughout the ballpark trying to find Steve Howe and could not find him. It was such an embarrassing, frustrating thing. I didn't know. I mean, it was like, I was kind of like, I should have known to follow the herd. I didn't know. And maybe, maybe that would have been a lesson if I paid more attention in college, somebody would have said, Hey, when you go cover this, you got to follow, you know, other people to kind of know what you don't know. Well, that's interesting because I was thinking about mine and it would be kind of the opposite. It would be not follow the herd, but every job is different. Like you were there to, you know, your job that day was to cover 
whatever the biggest news was in in the on the Yankees. But it, you know what, Stu, it really wasn't. At least, and maybe it wasn't. I didn't hear it right. But it wasn't to cover. My job was there to cover the team, and the thinking was I was going to write this. You know, I, like probably a lot of people who get into media into writing, you get into thinking you're going to write little features, right? And so I was, you know, I was probably too fixated on that. And the lesson there was I was not going to be out hustled again after that happened because I was so embarrassed. Um, and I don't even know if this woman is still in the business. I don't know whatever happened to her. Sherry Johnson, she was our, she was the Broward sports editor. And I was just like, you know, I was so embarrassed and not only to feel like I let her down, but I just like, it was it was bad. It was just a bad deal all around. And, and um, you know, so be it. I mean, it's it's a lesson to learn from. You, you really screwed up. And so I think sometimes that's the, those are the best lessons to have. You know, I think to the back to early Sports Illustrated days and, and kind of, I mean, again, some of the best experience you get is just kind of being around great people in your profession and being around, um, you know, when I first started covering college basketball with Grant Wall and Seth Davis, college football with Tim Layden and Austin Murphy. And, um, and Ivan Mazel when he was still at SI. And, you know, one of the things that SI was very big on was with, with this access, the access you get after a game or at a practice or whatnot was don't follow. Maybe you start out following the herd, but be the last one left in the locker room. Wait till everybody kind of peters out and, and get something unique for yourself. Or everybody's crowded around, uh, Steph Curry. We'll just use that as an example. Those quotes are going to, and this is now in the age of Twitter, those quotes are going to be everywhere. You go get the assistant coach. Assistant coaches are often the best, as you know, sources you can have. Uh, and then related to that, becoming aware of like you're at a big game, literally anything you ex- observe or see that day could make it into your story. So not, so, you know, not thinking about just what goes on between the lines, but you never know that, you know, you might see um, some sort of interaction on the sideline or... I don't know, just, a, you know, I remember covering the Rose, Michigan State uh, Rose Bowl uh, win over Stanford a few years ago, and it was the 100th Rose Bowl, and I wanted that to be a theme of my column as much as the actual what happened in the game, and uh, we did all the interviews, I'm going up to the press box, and I'm like, I still don't know what my lead's going to be, I don't have anything particularly great, and I happened to see two Michigan State, like the last Michigan State fans left in the building practically, leaving the concourse and saying to themselves something like, I don't remember exactly, you know, like, wow, that was even, man, that whole thing, that was even better than I ever could have imagined. And that became the lead. So, and actually one of the guys contacted me afterward, like, did you over, was that me? Did you overhear us? So those are my lessons. And if anybody listening is going to journalism, maybe they can take that to heart. All right. Well, that's good. That is very, very good. Um... Treat people well is a big one. Yeah. Hey, I mean, I, this wasn't, this was something I overheard another one. I was at ESPN magazine early on. I used to sit near our baseball department and our senior editor was Glenn Wagner. And I remember him and the guy under him, Jeff Bradley, uh, were talking about freelancers and who was a pain in the ass to work with and who wasn't. And if you weren't a pain in the ass, you probably got a lot more side work. My internship at ESPN magazine, where we first met a big lesson from that was show initiative. Because if I had just kind of sat at my desk and waited for them to assign me things, I probably would have just spent that whole summer fact-checking and, and you know, doing kind of grunt work. But, you know, they were getting – I remember they were uh, – John Roach, who is now in 
New Orleans. New Orleans was the college football editor at the time, and they were planning their college football preview issue. And I went up to him and I said, look, um, would it be possible for me to do one of the top 25 capsules? And he let You me did Wisconsin, it. right? Wow. How do you remember that? I don't know. It's really fucked up how I remember. <laughs> do you remember that I did the stuff. Wisconsin preview in the 1998 <laughs> preview issue? Uh, and they liked that, so I got more opportunities like that down the road. So, um, yeah, be nice to everybody you interact with in this business. Very, very true. It's, um, it's, it's a small world. It really is. So Okay. We're hoping to ride the momentum of that great Gene Chiswick podcast the other day. So if you haven't done so already, if you're a new listener, please subscribe to The Audible on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We'll see you next time. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.